0: We are in Matthew's gospel this morning. Black Bibles around the room. I want you to just get your thumb in the place. Matthew's gospel, chapter eight. We're in the back half of chapter eight. We'll be starting in uh, verse eighteen this morning. But before we get there, I want to. Uh, I want to just. Um, I want to say this. I grew up. I've. I've spent the majority of my life in two theological systems. Um, for the first twenty-four twenty. Five, six years of my life, I grew up in a theological system that made much of humanity, that made much of men. And so the way that I've just kind of called this, named this shorthand, is I've called it big man uh, theology. Um, where I stood with God was always changing based on my actions. And so I was always like one sin or one cuss word or one finger on the road or something like that, away from uh, being out of God's favor and out of his love. And I lived in this kind of push and pull, pull um, almost like spiritual schizophrenia where I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. And it was pretty exhausting. And then in 2008, I got introduced to what I call big God theology. Um, I was introduced to a way of reading the scriptures called biblical theology, which we've learned something quite a bit about actually in uh, in the last few months going through the whole story where we start to see God's sovereign and saving work over time. Just continuing to see his purposes through and continuing to hold his people up in the storms of life. And often I get asked, How in the world did you get in on uh, starting a church with your friends and with your loved ones? And it's Simply by God's grace, because I was wandering and I was faithless and I was arrogant and I was selfish and I still am a lot of those things, and the Lord continues to work much of that out in me and work with me. But a phrase that I started using about a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer, was um, to describe my theological shift from big man theology to big God theology. Was I discovered a kind of way of reading the scriptures? And seeing God as the one who holds me up and who can hold me up in the storms of my life. Back in 2008, uh, I was a business owner. I had a company called Cedar Mountain Tile Makers, and we made tile for interior designers and architects. And when 2008 hit, this is the housing recession. It tanked a lot of builders and bankrupted a lot of people. I was absolutely freaked in this moment. Meredith and I just got married in 08. We just bought a house in 08 or 09, somewhere in there, when all of this uh, economic uh, turmoil Started to happen. Um, I had just received a big uh, S- uh, Small Business Administration loan. I had spent through the majority of that capital, getting our displays all in in the entire state of Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Idaho. Uh, things were going good. Um, but I I remember showering one morning and when all of this was kind of tanking and I was starting to let people go and I was thinking about closing my shop and I was, and like the orders weren't coming in, but the SBA loan bill was still due and I could feel the stress in my bones. Like I remember in that moment, I can remember where I was, I could feel Feel it. Unlike I've ever felt stress before in that moment, I, I, I thought I'm going to lose the house. I'm going to lose my ability to pay uh, just to provide for my brand new wife, a baby on the way, all of that kind of stuff. And come to find out, it was in that season that God started to prep me for starting all of life, church. He was radically shifting my story and my affections and my uh, priorities. And he was insisting that I depend on him to sustain me in that season. Um, Every one of us here experiences life storms. Everybody here experiences storms that we do not know what to do with. Uh, Whether they're inner storms, inner chaos, it feels like it's inside of us. It has something to do with our body or whether it's outer storms, outer chaos. It feels like it's external to us. We all experience difficulty and we all experience challenge. And for some of us, it is inside of us. And for some of us, it's outside of us. So for those of us where it's inside of us, maybe you're struggling with a deep uh, abiding, that's not a good word for it, but anxiety that just grips you and, and, and that overcomes you or a depression um, maybe there's diagnosis, and maybe there's illness, maybe there's injury. There are things that are going on with your body that are really, really frustrating you and causing great uh, just disorder in your, in, in, in your life, or you feel like that's what it is. Never-ending what-ifs, where your mind just cycles and loops over and over, and you just cannot stop obsessing about things. Or maybe it's coming from outside of you, where uh, there's incredible grief, relationships have broken down. You're grieving the loss of a loved one, a looming recession. If you're a business owner, you're starting to think about these things and and kind of prioritize how you'll live in the coming years. Maybe there's a breakup that's occurred, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife. Here's our big idea this morning. Being a disciple of Jesus comes at a cost, disrupting our lives and clarifying our allegiances. Being a, a disciple of Jesus comes at a cost, disrupting our lives and clarifying our allegiances. I want to read. I want you to read. Hopefully, your thumb is there, your place is there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse uh, 18 this morning. This is God's Word. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So he had just been healing. He just healed uh, many people. The the person, the man with leprosy, he had seen the faith of a centurion. He gave orders to go over to the other side. They were near the Sea of Galilee. They were on the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, "'but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' Another of the disciples said to him, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, some other texts say Gergesenes or Gerasenes, it's confusing, but it's the same place, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is God's word. I'm gonna go with uh, three kind of big headers this morning. Uh, the first one is discipleship to Jesus comes at a cost. And we're gonna take this in the three sections. So that's the first section. The second is Jesus's authority is disruptive to our chaos. And the third is Jesus's authority clarifies the quality of our discipleship. So in this first section in verses 18 to 22, I just call these guys, these. Uh, it's a story of two would-be disciples who are coming to Jesus and, and starting to, trying to declare some allegiance to him. And I call them Mr. Big Head and Mr. Faint Heart. Uh, it's a contrast in the two of these people. Have you ever met somebody with a big head? If you met somebody with a big head, you know it. Like they'll, they'll come into a situation and they're kind of announcing, hey, I'm here like they want to be seen. Maybe it's kind of on the opposite end of that. Maybe their, uh, their their attitude and posture towards you is, I don't need you. If their heads are really overgrown, they're kind of doing both in tandem. They're they're proud to be there among you, and yet they're uh, they have a sense that they don't they don't really need you. You are expendable. Um, this Mister Big Head guy. He comes, he's a scribe, and he comes to Jesus and makes this self-assured announcement that's essentially, hey, good news, Jesus. I'm here. I'm going to come with you wherever you go. I'm in. I'm all in. And he's just kind of over-promising right on that front end. Um, what a scribe means is a writer or a secretary. So scribes, they, they existed all throughout the ancient Near East. And the majority of times that we see scribes mentioned in our New Testament is they were secretaries and um, sort of legal advisors, very educated people, thinkers, engineer types, who were looking at the scriptures and helping the religious rulers to, to, to parse the scriptures and to understand what they meant. And so... Um, In our New Testament, this guy, we don't know exactly if he was a a, a religious scribe or if he just worked in the marketplace, but we do know that this scribe came into contact with Jesus, that he appreciated Jesus, and that he had a significant desire to, to follow Jesus, to declare his allegiance. I'll follow you wherever, but Jesus in this moment, he pushes back. Foxes have holes, right? But I don't have anywhere to lay my head, not so fast. I don't have a home. I don't have roots. I'm on a mission. It's pretty uncomfortable at times. It may even require death. It may go that far, at a minimum, suffering. You willing to follow that, Jesus pushes back on him. And then that conversation in the text, the way Matthew presents it, that conversation ends we see a similar kind of dynamic in um, the, per, the first uh, apostle who's always mentioned in the lists of apostles, Peter. Right? Jesus, like, I'm with you all the way to the end. No, Pete, you're gonna deny me before the night is over three times. Not just one, not just two, but three times. Jesus is not looking for disciples at any cost. He's looking for disciples who count the cost. The quality of disciple that Jesus is consistently on the lookout for are those who count the cost. Those who consider his claims and say, even if it means X, Y, or Z, great suffering, difficulty, turmoil, I'm with you. I've thought ahead. I've rehearsed those moments to the best of my ability. I'm with you. I want to stay allegiant, and by your spirit, I will. By your power, I will. So, church, let's respect Jesus by counting the cost of what it means to follow him and find him worthy. The next guy who rolls up on Jesus is uh, Mr. Faint Heart. He starts with Lord. That's a pretty good start in in this text. Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, don't follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I want to follow you, but there's something in front of you. My dad. He's just died, and I need to go back and help mom bury him. Do you feel the coldness in Jesus' response? Like it comes off the page. It feels a bit cold. It feels a bit harsh. It feels a bit callous. I hope you're I hope you're reading the text like with a human angle on it. How would you receive that kind of news from Jesus? He's essentially saying, You need to prioritize me above burying your your dad. And then he says, Let the dead bury their own dead. Let those who aren't a part of my kingdom, the walking dead, bury their own. You were dead in your trespasses. Those who deny Jesus Christ are named as spiritually dead. Jesus, in this moment, is pressing on the commitments of Mr. Faintheart. He's pressing on our commitments as the readers. It feels harsh. Um, Dale Bruner, a commentator on uh, this passage, he says this. It's it's helpful. Jesus' view of secular society isn't flattering. Jesus looks at the world with clear vision. It's a place of the walking dead. The world is in mortal need of disciples who will follow Jesus into rough engagement with it. That means dangerous engagement with it. The world is death. Discipleship is life, he writes. It's a powerful quote. He does see the world with clear vision and he calls us to see the world with clear vision. It seems that generally speaking, most self-assured people, they could be further from the kingdom than they realize. Jesus, I'm all in with you. I'll go the distance. And the faint hearts who do have some objections may be closer than they think. It's interesting that in this account, we see very little in this account, but it's only to the faint heart. Where Jesus is, is loved genuinely, but in second place, he's kind of got the order wrong, loving neighbor and then loving God. Does Jesus give the invitation to follow? Our priorities matter to Jesus. And he's got a response to Mr. Bighead's claims and Mr. Faintheart's requests is also implied in Jesus' answer is that he deserves first place. And if we truly love him, we will make him first. And it could really hurt, and it could make us feel vulnerable. It could uh, press on our insecurities as our assumptions and as our comforts are disrupted. There is a cost to following the Lord. It comes up all the time in your workplace, on social media, in neighborhoods. The moment you bring up the name of Jesus in conversation with people who you don't know where they stand with him, there's that brief, awkward moment where people are anticipating what is going to be said. Jesus's authority, this is the second point here, Jesus's authority is disruptive. One of the things that Jesus, it it disrupts all kinds of things, but one of the things that Jesus' authority uh, disrupts is our chaos. And so we're going to turn to verses 23 through 27. We move from these two would-be disciples in this moment where Matthew is asking us to clarify our commitments and to count the cost. We do see now some disciples who apparently do count the cost and they actually get into the boat with Jesus. So here's what I want you to do uh, for, for a moment. Uh, if you would, I just want to help uh, get us into this situation. So if you're willing, I, I want you to just kind of settle in where you are and, and, and close your eyes. Uh, I want to just try to help you imagine uh, this moment. You've been with Jesus. You're one of his disciples. You're walking closely with him. And you've left everything that's familiar to you to follow him. And now you've started to see some really wild things. You have, for the entire course of your life, whenever you've seen a leper, you've avoided them. You've physically distance yourself from them, and you've watched Jesus reach out and touch a man with leprosy, and he's just been healed right before your eyes instantly. You've started to experience some conflict that comes with following Jesus You've, started, you've, you've seen this over the last few days. You've gone without a bit of food. You're in the countryside. You're following him. You don't know what each day brings. And Jesus is really tired. You could see it on him. He's visibly tired. His, his, his voice is fatigued. There's the bags under his eyes. He is uh, he, He's just losing a little bit of steam in his humanity. He's been at the center of these healings. He's been at the center of all kinds of joy as people are healed. He's been in the center of of conflict, and he's been in the center of these crowds where there's just commotion and dust, people gathering around and pressing in to see him. And so you love him, and he wants to go to a different region, a Gentile region, which is going to mean that you guys are going to need to get in the boat and take him a short distance across the Sea of Galilee. And so you love him, and you tell him to take a nap. You'll stay up, you'll man the boat. And so you're headed into Gentile territory. You've never been there before, though. You don't exactly know what to expect, but you think, you know, it'll be a quick near to shoreline trip on the boat. And so you get out into the waters and and, and things look good, but it's dusk. And pretty soon on this great lake that's massive, three times bigger than Lake Coeur d'Alene, there's a mountain that's 10,000 feet, just a few miles in the distance that looms over it. And you know it has a reputation of having storms on it, but now you begin to experience one for yourself. And you start to question, you're wondering what's going on in this moment, how serious is it going to get? And as the warm air from the sea rises up and hits the cold air coming down off the mountain, a chill comes over you and you can feel it. It's that quick weather chill that you can feel on your skin and the sky darkens but you're with some fishermen who grew up on this lake and so they're assuring you it's going to be okay they can they can manage it but all of a sudden this lake starts sloshing and it comes on you out of nowhere and Jesus is really tired he just keeps sleeping but you are all starting to glance at each other you've got some looks of anxiety Water starts to slosh up and and hit the sides of the boat and slosh into the boat, and it's going from side to side, and you're starting to recognize that you're swamped. And now there is, or you're beginning to be swamped, and now there's a flurry of activity on this boat. And so people get up, and they're manning sails, and you're gathering things that are strewn across the floor. You're bailing water, and you look over at Jesus, and you're like, is he still sleeping? That's so weird. Somebody wake him up. We're going to go down. We could potentially capsize. This is really serious. Hey, Jesus, we could die here. Get up. And in that moment, he wakes up. He takes a quick inventory of the situation. He postures himself up on the stern where he was taking that nap. And he says something that you don't have a category for. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And there's some sort of deficiency in you that he begins to point out here. When you're in, a, in, in this moment, you're in a bit of hysteria and you expect others to be in hysteria, but instead they're calm, it's jarring. Crisis situations need cool heads, not big heads or hysterical heads. So just continue imagining this. Jesus sits up, he says that to you, he looks out on the waters and then he rebukes the wind And he rebukes the sea, and the waters go calm, and the wind dies like that. You don't have a category for this. One commentator says the waters were healed in all kinds of chaos and turbulence. So you go from fairly calm, navigable water to almost capsizing to calm water in a stretch of like 15 to 20 minutes. It's jarring for the the, the wind, it's jarring for that to stop at a finger's snap. But when the weather obeys your friend's voice, that breaks some norms and some previously held unquestioned assumptions. Wait, did he just do that? Notice too that Jesus in this moment, you can can look up and kind of come out of that zone if you're still in it. Jesus in this moment speaks directly to the wind and to the waves. He doesn't appeal to God, the Father. He doesn't say, Father, would you calm the wind and the waves? He speaks to them himself, which is a nod. Matthew is giving us some clues here to his deity, to the fact that Jesus is unlike. He's fully human, but unlike other people. This is wild. Written a thousand years before Jesus lived, Psalm 107, verse 20 through 23 is uncanny in its similarity. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but turn there if you would. Psalm 107, 20 through 33. I'm just going to read this. I don't need to offer a ton of commentary on it. He, God, sent out his word and healed them. So what has Jesus just been doing? Healing people. And he delivered them from their destruction. He'll he'll do that in in next week's passage as he um, tells a paralytic that he's forgiven of his sin. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They, the waves, mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. There, the peoples, the sailors, courage, melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Similar account written a 1,000 years before this historical account of Jesus on the waters, which are included in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. These are eyewitnesses to the scene, filling in various details. What kind of man is this, is their response. Even the wind and the sea respond to his commands. Great storm leads to great calm with just a word, just spoken. I'm pretty confident that Matthew closes this account with the disciples' question because that's what he wants the reader of his account to ask. What kind of man is Jesus? He's asking the reader, the recipient of his gospel, to ask and to wrestle with the same question. He's creating tension here with intention Do you believe that this account of Jesus Christ is history? Answer that question for yourself. Do you believe that this is history and not myth? That Jesus is really alive, having gone to the cross, in our place, having raised from the dead three days later, that he is now alive? He's not dead. And that he has a kind of power like this, just like he had in his life with the disciples. What kind of man is Jesus? Tension is a key way of maturing our faith. The chaos that comes from inside, from outside, it is a key way that Jesus means to mature our faith. I say this a lot. God takes us where we don't want to go, oftentimes in order to produce something in us that cannot, a kind of faith and boldness that cannot be produced if we stay in our creature comforts, if we stay in our comfort zone. He's consistently taking us out of our depths. Does that represent you right now? Whatever it is that that work or with your family life or with illness or with injury or with what's going on in your mind and in your brain, like what, uh, is is there tension that he is, potentially bringing about for the purpose of leaning on him. We often um, avoid Jesus's calling to us. We often avoid the tensions that he's bringing our way. We try to get to comfort almost feeling like the chaos in our life is opposed to God's will for our life, but rather he, so our our way of thinking is that he wants us to be comfortable. He wants things to be easy or to have ease. And so much of what we read in the scriptures is just full, full, full of tension. Why would it be any different for his people today? About a dozen Mr. Little Faiths get challenged and turned in this moment, in this boat, into Mr. Medium Faiths. And then they continue to walk with Jesus, continue to see what he's about, continue to witness his life, and they'll go through a lot more challenge and a lot more trial, and their faith will continue growing. And they'll even go to violent deaths, loyal all of the way to, to Jesus. And great tension is our process too because we're his disciples. We're his people. We're not that different. Now, I don't really know exactly what to do with Jesus in in these passages. Like, I'm in tension as I'm reading this and trying to, to describe it and trying to open it up for you as well. There's an aspect here that doesn't seem considerate. It doesn't seem compassionate to him, where he's saying things like, let the dead bury their own dead, when he's talking about a man and his dad and his mom. Or he's saying to these disciples in the moment, why are you afraid of drowning? It's like, We're going to die. That's why I'm afraid of drowning. I don't want to die. I think we need to realize and embrace that Jesus is considerate and that Jesus is compassionate, but he's not tame. He's not domesticated. In the lines of C.S. Lewis, he's not safe, but he is good. He knows what is best, and so he does what he wants with who he wants, how he wants, when he wants and knowing this what I now what I know to do is to bow my knees and to submit God disrupts our plans because his plans are and his purpose is superior to ours he does not need our permission we are the creature and he is the creator but what's so interesting about the kindness of God also is he does ask for it he asks for your loyalty He seeks it. He wants it. He wants partnership. When storms arise in our life, faith in his salvation will be rewarded. And you can trust these disruptions. And his authority, it not only disrupts, but it is constantly testing our allegiances. And this is my final point here. Jesus' authority clarifies the quality of our discipleship. We're in verses 28 through 34, this story of uh, this account of these two demon-possessed men. Now, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, they say there's one demon-possessed man. Matthew's gospel says there are two. Um, The only way to reconcile is that in Mark and Luke, there's there's, there's one who was in the background, and there's one who was in the forefront, and Matthew decides to talk about the one in the forefront. Did I just say that wrong? In Matthew's gospel, there's two, and in Mark and Luke, there's one just for clarity. I don't know what I actually just said. Um, <laughs> there, is, uh, there is no neutrality with Jesus. There isn't neutrality with Jesus. One thing to notice when we're having conversations uh, with people outside of the church or outside of uh, the faith about Jesus is that people are typically for him or open to him or against him. So they're curious or they're open or they're affirming in some way. He's a good man. He's a wise teacher. He's, right, he's a miracle worker. Or they're opposed to him where he's a myth. He's a figment of your imagination. Right? He's an imposter. He never existed. But when we get into, when a person gets into the specifics of Jesus's teaching and his claims, the neutrality fades quickly because Jesus has a demand for people's lives on people's lives. People are typically in that moment, when you start to wrestle with his words and the Sermon on the Mount on the page, people people are typically for him or want no part of him. That middle ground separates and and thins. Now, when Jesus uh, arrives, on the the other side, in this boat, after this voyage and calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee, this is a place called the the Gadarenes, and these two demon-possessed men, they come up to Jesus, and the language here indicates a confrontation. Like, they are ready for a confrontation, because Matthew tells us that people could never pass that way. They had to reroute. So this is likely on a road or a path or something. So as they're coming into this region, maybe there were a few boats on the shore, and that's how—and maybe there's, like, some—some. Some buildings or some outbuildings or something like that near the shore. And so they knew Jesus directed them, this is where we're going. Uh, And the the demon guys were used to, these demonized men were used to these confrontations. And so are the people. And so the people avoided it. And they come out of these tombs, That's where they were. You should read Luke's account and Mark's account because they give way more detail. Matthew is crazy concise here. His is just like, his account is sharp. His account is trying to just show us the authority of Jesus. Forget all of the details. But Mark and Luke, they're like getting into the minutia. They're like telling us that the guys were naked. They didn't wear any clothes and they'd cut themselves with rocks and they'd scream out from this cemetery area and people could hear them. And so they were actually tormenting the townspeople. The demonic spiritual realm knows God. They sense his presence with great clarity. And in this moment, they don't deny him or his authority. Um, Jesus' brother, James, would say that yeah, you guys, church, you believe that God is one. Even the demons believe in God and they shudder. They believe in him, but they are opposed to him. They hate him. They recognize his authority. And so as they come up and they approach, there's something different about the Lord Jesus. When you are around, working around a a bona fide follower of Jesus, and you guys haven't like introduced yourselves to each other on those terms, have you ever noticed that we have, we quickly have a sense, like, I think that person is actually a follower of Jesus. And then the conversation comes up. Our spirits bear witness with the spirit and their spirits that we are brothers and sisters in those moments. And the demons and the demonic, they have a way heightened sense of God's presence. They know that Jesus and the Father are one. They know and believe that he is the son of the most high God. What are you doing here? Have you come to torment us before the time? And so they beg Jesus not to disrupt their situation and not to send them back into the abyss. Maybe that's a place where then they're tormented and they can't have their way, but they're subject to all kinds of, uh, of evil themselves. And so they identify this Herd of pigs, Gentile bacon, just grazing a, a, gr- a good distance away. This is um, this is clearly a Gentile area. The Jews would have nothing to do with swine at all. They beg for permission to go into these pigs. There are about two thousand of them. Mark's account tells us, and Jesus, with a word, tells them to go. And the demons here—it's not just one, but they're in the plural. Matthew and Mark's account will give us numbers. One of them identifies themselves as legion, which. Could be up to 6,000 demons in one person or two people. And so they go and they inhabit this herd of pigs and these pigs go off, they, they, they go into hysteria and they go off a steep cliff and drown themselves. Now, Jesus uses two extraordinary events to arrest the attention of the local people. The healing of the demonized and the loss of food and income for the Gentiles a good deal of wealth was just plundered in a moment the herdsmen they witnessed this extraordinary event they the, matthew tells us that they flee And they go and they tell the whole city. So there's some sort of a local populace there. Don't think about it complex and spread out like our city. Think about it like an ancient city where word of mouth travels so fast because everybody is right there. And they're like, these guys, you know them. You know the stories. We tell ghost stories around the campfire about these guys. All the kids are afraid of them. They're sitting and clothed in their right minds right now. Something has happened and a guy did it to them. And the whole city comes out to, to see and the townspeople confirm it in great numbers. But even though they see the change in, the, in these demoniacs, they beg Jesus, the rescuer, to leave and leave them unchanged. They tell him to get out. They evict him. The herdsmen, the people, they were afraid of the demoniac, but now there's somebody before them even more powerful. The man before them, Jesus, had power over a demoniac who they couldn't bind and they couldn't subdue, which means that they couldn't control Jesus either. And so instead of seeking to know if Jesus was any different, they beg him to take off, to depart. And the tragedy of this story, I hope you see it, is that he granted their request Jesus' intrusion cost them their jobs, cost them a good deal. So, you know, maybe not their jobs, but cost them a good deal of their livelihood. People do not want Jesus to mess with their stuff and their life and their trajectory and the perfect plan that they have set themselves up for. We want a tameable Jesus who lives according to our rules, not a Jesus who comes on his own terms. Ask yourself, is there anything in my life that Jesus cannot touch? Can you name, can you identify things, people, situations, dreams, jobs, ideas? Jesus cannot touch them. You will not Give them to him. You will not fast from them. You will not shut them down, shut them out. You will not walk away from them. You're not even willing to have the conversation. You just distract yourself with something else in order to get away from the Spirit's voice that's impressing something upon you. Jesus has power over nature and supernature. He's the Lord of the weather and the Lord of wretched devils. He is more uncontrollable than nature. Who is this man? He is no myth. He has really lived, really done these things, has really died in our place for our sins, taken that upon Himself called us to come to Him, us who are weary and burdened, plagued by chaos, whether inside of us or outside of us. And He has promised us that He will give us rest and that He will lead us. And He wants our allegiance, He wants to be our first love. There is nothing more ultimate in this world or in all of the cosmos more than God Himself. There is no one and nothing worth more than than him. So for you to say, Jesus, you can have my family. You can have my parenting style. You can have my job. You can have my relationships. You can have my worries. You can have my cancer. You can have my, my injuries. You can have whatever it is that I am plagued by. That is what he wants. He wants our first allegiance. People marvel at Jesus, but few stake their lives on him. Are you willing to stake your life on him? May we, like this demoniac in Mark's account, he begged Jesus. They begged Jesus to get into the boat and to go with him. He begged Jesus, let me in. And Jesus said, no, 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 go and tell Jesus the city, how much mercy God has had on you. And so this demoniac goes out into Gentile territory and starts paving the way for good news to come as future disciples will start to saturate this area just a few years later after Jesus's atonement and resurrection. The chaos of my crisis in 2008 as I felt like business was going to fail it staged a massive shift in me. And I actually shuttered it. I, I, I ended up closing it down. I moved it to my own house. I kept it going for a time, got full-time work in Spokane. And at the same time, I was having a baby, working for a church part-time, keeping my business alive in the garage part-time, and then, and then working full-time managing a tile and stone warehouse in Spokane. I was a busy guy in that moment, in that season of life. Shuttering that business was painful, and it was discouraging to me. I didn't know what the future looked like. But Jesus pushed me to wrestle down answers about my priorities. And had I experienced the financial success that looked inevitable in 2006 and 2007, I might have missed the opportunity to become a pastor and to leverage my time and my energy, my comforts, for the sake of the gospel. I have a strong sense that there are a good deal of us in the room who have sensed God's calling on us. He's asked us to do particular things. He's asked us to function in particular ways. He's asked us to obey him. And we get freaked. We're comfortable now and I'm not willing to step out And so we hold back, and we avoid, and we avoid, and we avoid, and we avoid. Is that you? Do you have a sense that the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning? Saying, I've been asking this of you for years, years and years, and you keep running, you keep avoiding, you keep holding back. Can you name that? Lord Jesus loves you, even in our disobedience. When we are faithless, he remains faithful to us, and so he does not give up. You keep hearing his whisper. It's getting more distant and more distant and more distant because you've denied his voice for so long, but he's still talking. What does it look like for you to listen to him and to give him your ear and to push some of those plans that you've had for your life off and to say, Jesus, if you want to rearrange the furniture of my life, I'm freaked to my core, but I'm willing. Pray with me. Father, your word is powerful. Your word comes to us and instructs us and teaches us. Your spirit is powerful coming to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, teaching us and instructing us, giving us gifts. Jesus, your work is powerful at the cross, paving the way to have peace with God, paving the way to have the spirit of God indwell us. Father, your plan is powerful from before the foundation of the world. You predestined to adopt us in love as your own sons and daughters. We thank you. Would you speak to your people this morning? Would you confirm for us? Would you not allow us to avoid what you are calling us into? And would you assure us of your forgiveness and your presence to us, your approval, your acceptance in Jesus Christ? We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.